Oh, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29. My apologies for the length of the sermon last week. And whenever I say that, I always get someone who says, you never have to apologize for preaching God's Word. But when you say you're going to get out at a certain time, you need to let your yes be yes. And your no be no, because we've got Sunday school teachers who are expecting us to finish now at 12 and try filling 20 minutes with 24 little kids who are hungry and their fishy crackers have either, they've either burnt them off or the yellow dye number five has, uh, you know, amped them up. Did I mention we still need one more teaching team? This service, with the first and second, I I am serious. Uh, Please bless us with, you'll be blessed teaching the first and second graders. So what I'll do differently, we have a a large section to cover again. I'm going to focus on Genesis 29 and 30, and then we're going to look at the early life of Joseph, which is actually what the lesson is about but you don't understand the early life of Joseph without the backstory. I'm going to expect that on your own time this week, you read through the chapters that we gloss over. I hate glossing over God's Word, but in this case, we are trying to keep up with the schedule that our Sunday school is, is using. And we've been using this curriculum because we want to understand all of God's story in its entirety, what we've been calling the meta-narrative, the story about all stories. Because it is human nature to push God out of the way and so focus on ourselves and our own little story, and that is when we get into trouble. Life doesn't make sense anymore when we try to define reality and define our essence and define our purpose in life. God must define those things. And as we read through Genesis, you'll notice that you go long stretches of narrative where these characters really aren't acknowledging God in their lives at all, and they get themselves into a mess, some really dysfunctional messes. I mean, we're talking like Kardashian, you know, Jerry Springer reality TV mess, and there's nothing new under the sun, Amen. We keep joking about how the world says the Bible's just not relevant to today's culture. Like, Well, just because it's an agrarian society doesn't mean it's not relevant. People are people. Our secular world, by pushing God out of the picture now, is left with the unenviable task of defining reality and defining man's nature and essence. How do you have purpose and ultimate identity if there's no ultimate, if there's no God. And it seems like great freedom right now to be able to say, well, I think I'm this and I think I'm that. And, you know, I was thinking I could go back to college because I don't really feel like a 43-year-old. I identify with a 19-year-old. And um, I'm going to play sports, but not as a man, as a woman, because I think I would rock you know, I'll play basketball because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 
I'm tall and a little bit faster. Actually, probably those ladies would drag me up and down the court. (laughs) And um, I want to get into the the school I was never able to get into, so I think I identify with whatever minority group's going to get me affirmative action to get into. And you see where the problem is going to be in our society. We can't have people saying, I'm this, when God's really made you to be this. Our entire society will implode under the weight of the absurdity. So, in the meantime, though, they will prop things up with laws and with money and with calling all of us bigots for pointing out that the emperor is wearing no clothes. But eventually, society will cave under the weight of its own absurdity unless we repent and turn back to God. And it's never too late for that. So we will keep praying and preaching the gospel. And I always see things more as an underground railroad. It's not that the whole country is going to repent all at once. One by one, we are going to lead people to freedom through Christ and the gospel and repentance. Amen? Amen. So don't get frustrated when you don't see wholesale change on a mass level. God cares about individuals. And you, you be Harriet Tubman. You run the Underground Railroad, and when God brings you that person who says, I am tired of myself, I am tired of my sin, I am tired of absurdity, I am tired of the world, say, let me show you to freedom. Let me take you to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. I love this section of, of Scripture. I am fascinated by human nature. I love to figure out what makes people tick. I was a biology major in college because I was really interested in how the world works. But as I got older, I wanted to know specifically how people function. I took a psychology class, and I was hooked and changed my major to psychobiology, which combined the hard sciences of biology and the soft science of psychology into uh, let's diagnose the human condition from a nature and a nurture standpoint. Nature being what you're hardwired by your DNA to be. Nurture what you were trained or taught to be by your environment or your parents or by our culture. And because secular science has pushed God out of the picture, you're only left with nature-nurture. And when I was in college, it was nature versus nurture. Which is it? Do people think what they think and do what they do because they have to because of their DNA, or is it because they have to because they were trained to do that? And where it was convenient for man to get off the hook by using nature, you'd say, well, I can't help it. I was born that way. And where, where man wanted to change his trajectory in life, he'd point to nurture and say, well, if we just change the culture and we just change education, if we just re-educate people, then they won't be victims of their nurture. If we can rip kids away from their parents and their fairy tale gods, we can fix everything. Well, here we are. The experiment was an utter failure, and yet they're asking us to pump more money into the experience, right? Common core. That's going to fix everything. We just have the wrong kind of nurture. If we just all agree on the same nurture, that'll fix everything. And so this is the world we find ourselves living in. When I became a Christian then, I wanted to know what makes people tick because I wanted to help them. And as a young, naive Christian, I thought I could help fix everybody. 
And yet people are stubborn, and I'm people. And I was a teacher in high school, and all these kids, you know, I was supposed to teach math, but I'd really want to teach them life skills and, and point them to God. And I was conflicted by how two kids from the same family, one could be on an amazing trajectory towards success and happiness, and another on a completely different trajectory. And you're like, well, that's an argument for nature, because they had the same nurture. But then I got to know the family well, and you realize that like the families we're reading about in the Bible, sometimes mom and dad treat one kid a lot differently than they treat the other. So then it's like, well, maybe it's nurture. And what I learned was there's more to the equation, and the most important piece of the equation is God, the sovereignty of God. You can't pull God out of the equation and explain human behavior by merely nature and nurture. They're important parts of the equation, but they're not the final story. And so as we go through Genesis today, we're going to look at the life of Jacob, and we're going to see how his nature and nurture affected him, and yet how God was sovereignly using his nature and nurture to accomplish his will. And he promised he would bless Jacob, and he's not going to renege on his promises, even though we're going to see that Jacob was kind of, I don't know, he floundered in life. Let's just be nice. He was floundering. Choice after choice, decision after decision makes you just, oh, Jacob. Oh, and yet God continues to love him and bless him and make good on his promises to bring a messianic seed through his line, make him the father of a great nation, and bless all the nations of the earth through him and give him the promised land. How is God going to pull this off through such um, interesting characters that we've been running into? Well, that's the kind of God we have. He can work those miracles. And he's working those miracles in our lives today. As I said before, we see long stretches in the Bible where God is not mentioned at all in Genesis. And then suddenly there's a verse that pertains to God and it puts God back in focus. Oh, okay, he's there all along. When you push God out of the equation, you have to replace him with something. And anytime you replace God with a false God, the Bible calls that idolatry. Idolatry. And as they start worshiping these idols in their life, that's where the dysfunction comes from. You want to know where the dysfunction comes from in your life and in your family and in our culture? It is because of idolatry, replacing God with false gods and then serving those gods. I want to introduce you to this book if you haven't read it before. It's called Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. Not that we agree with all of Timothy Keller's theology, but most of it is spot on. And I really like this book. It's, it's a sh- small read, short read, but very powerful. And it actually follows uh, the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in here. So get a copy of this book and read it on your own time. I think you'll be blessed. And it goes into some of the more sensitive topics that I don't feel comfortable covering in the pulpit with uh, children present. So there's some more adult content in here. When last we left Jacob, he was leaving 
the promised land to go back to Padan Aram to find a bride. Well, he was also fleeing his brother Esau, who wanted to murder him because he had stolen the blessing by tricking his blind father. Well, gee, when you string it all together like that, that's not very pretty at all, is it? No, this, this family had issues. You think your family has issues. And this is the patriarchal chosen family of God. If they were alive today, there would be an entire like gossip channel devoted to meet the patriarchs, right? Now, when Isaac wanted to find a wife, Abraham sent Eliezer, the servant, to Padan Aram to find him a wife and then bring the wife back. In this case, Jacob is having to go and flee his brother's wrath. Now, his mother doesn't want his, her son, her favorite son, to be murdered, so she tells her husband, Isaac, hey, maybe we should send Jacob to go get a bride so he doesn't marry a Canaanite woman like his brother Esau did. Remember, Esau married two Hittite women, and it grieved his parents that he would marry pagan women. Then remember when Jacob leaves to go to Padan Aram to, to pick a bride, Esau sees how much this pleases his parents, and he goes out and asks Uncle Ishmael for a family bride and picks himself up a third wife. And you start seeing where the idolatry here is. I, I want to earn my father's blessing. And Esau had his father's blessing until Jacob stole it. And so now Jacob is favored by his father. So now Esau wants his dad's blessing back, so he tries to manipulate his dad into giving him a blessing. Well, maybe if I marry myself a non-Canaanite woman. Is he thinking about this non-Canaanite woman? Is he thinking about being a good husband to her and serving her? No, it's just to get my on my dad's good side again. What a terrible reason for going into a marriage to get on your family's good side. Genesis 29. Then Laban said to Jacob, so Jacob ends up in Padan Aram, and there's Laban. Remember who Laban is? It's Rebekah's father. Remember we saw earlier that he's probably not the most honest character when he sees that Eliezer came from a rich family. He treats his guest with great respect. Come on in. Well, now we're really going to see his true colors. Jacob's looking for a bride. Laban understands this. He must know the story of why Jacob is here personally and not a servant like last time. Well, my brother's angry with me and I need to hang out here and lay low for a while until my brother uh, cools off. Oh, so now I've got, you know, a trump card. I've got some leverage over the kid. He says... Because you're my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? So, in other words, you're going to come here and work for me, but since you're a relative, it'd only be fair if I paid you wages. So, name your wages. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, 
That is Hebrew euphemism for not much of a looker. She had a great personality. But Rachel was beautiful of form and face. She's a looker. That's exactly what it means. She is a looker. She is a beauty queen. He was smitten, love at first sight. Before he gets to know anything about her, I must have her. You see, his idolatry. I must have her. Not much has gone right in my life. My brother wants to kill me. My dad never approved of me. But if I had her, that would fix everything. He's not thinking about her. He's not thinking about serving her. He's only thinking about what she can do for him, which is to fill that empty hole in his heart to be his God. And he's put this beautiful woman on a pedestal. By the way, that is what is at the root of pornography. So again, we have young children in our midst this morning, but that is what is at the root. Is This will make me something special if I had a girl like this. This would fulfill my deepest longings. It's why it's more hurtful than just looking at images. If you have a woman in your life, in essence, you're saying, I would rather have this woman because she would make me feel great about myself. She will make me satisfied. Of course, it's fake. She's not real. Well, she is a real person, but it's just an image. And so in a day and age where there's no photography and no internet, in essence, Rachel was Jacob's pornography. And that's all I will say about that in this company. Now, Jacob loved Rachel. It's more lust, uh, strong preference, strong desire. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, he knows that it's customary for the older daughter to be married off first. So he has to specifically say, I'm working for the younger daughter. Now, think how that made Leah feel. She's probably known this her whole life, that her younger sister turns the heads of all the men in the area. But being the older daughter, she does have some leverage over her younger sister. She can boss her around. She is the surrogate mom. When mom is not around, she functions as the matriarch, as the older daughter. But that's not good enough. At the end of the day, women want to be found captivating. That is their idol. I need a man to love me. That'll solve everything. If I just get the man, and if he adores me and cherishes me and almost worships me, you grow up being daddy's princess and then you expect your husband to turn you into princess. And he's been selfishly thinking his whole life, if I just got myself a servant, that would solve everything. I want to be worshipped. I want to be respected. I want to be adored. And early in the dating process, you do worship one another and adore one another. And then you say your vows, and the self-worship comes through. It's on, yeah. And then, hopefully, you learn through Christ how to say no to self and put on a servant's heart. 
Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man, so stay with me. So he's playing along, but he's scheming. He's, he's plotting. Rachel is my ace in the hole. It's what makes men want to give me their time and their talent and their service. If I marry her off, I'm stuck with my other daughter who's going to be hard to marry off. I could only imagine that Leah has turned bitter at this point. So not only is she not pleasing to the eye to look at, but she's not pleasing to be around. So it's going to be hard to marry this woman off. Small dowry. Almost to the place where the father has to give the dowry. You know? Seven years to work for a woman is exorbitant, according to commentators at this time. Seven years of hard labor hardly would equate to what the going rate was for a wife. Hey, but when people are smitten, they do stupid things. And pastors have to counsel a lot of young people in the throes of Twitter patient, right? Puppy love, head over heels. Remember, uh, Doug Cowan used to say, there's two things that will turn a man stupid, drugs and puppy love. And once the puppy love kicks in, you might as well hit him over the head with a hammer. <laughs> They're just not going to listen. And so better to talk to your kids long before the dating scene happens about God's plan for marriage and dating and how God knits hearts together and you're dealing with forces you can't possibly comprehend. And any kid who says, well, I'll be the one exception, right, they're not ready. They've just proven they're not ready. And so you've got to create a great relationship with your kids built on trust and love so that when that time comes, they're listening to your advice. Yet once they fall in love and you try to stop it, you've got Romeo and Juliet on your hands, right? There's nothing more powerful maybe than it's us against the world. So nothing new under the sun. I want to read you a quote from from Keller's book because it's one of my favorite lines he's ever written. In the early days of my pastoral ministry, I met a woman named Sally who had the misfortune of being born beautiful. Isn't that great? Even in childhood, she saw the power that she could wield with her physical attractiveness. At first, she used her beauty to manipulate others, but eventually others used it to manipulate her. She came to feel that she was powerless and invisible unless some man was in love with her. She could not bear to be alone, and as a result, she was willing to remain in relationships with men who were abusive. You probably know a Sally. And if you are a Sally this morning, God's mercy and grace can heal you. The one man in the world who you should care about loving you does love you. His name's Jesus Christ. So what happens? Jacob works for 
Laban for seven years. He's an amazing employee. God's gifted him with amazing administrative skills. Remember, he was kind of the homemaker. He stayed in the tents and ran the household. God's given him this kind of gifting, so you can imagine what kind of herdsman he was. And at the end of the seven years, Laban's thinking, I don't want to lose this guy. He's making me a fortune. And so he conspires with his older daughter Leah to trick Jacob on the night of the wedding. She'll wear her veil and pretend she's Rachel. And you're going to wear the veil, the whole ceremony, and then go back to the tent to consummate the marriage, and it's going to be dark. And in the morning, he lifts the veil, and he's married Leah. What a dastardly thing to do. I mean, who would trick someone like that? Oh, wait, Jacob did that to his own father. Well, what comes around goes around, right? God will not be mocked. Galatians 6, 7, a man will reap what he sows, this kind of law of sowing and reaping. The deceiver's been deceived. His wife's been supplanted. Remember, that's what Jacob's name means. Bait and switch. I thought I was getting Rachel. I got Leah instead. And no offense to this poor lady, but metaphorically, when we chase after our idols and then get them, we wake up in the morning and realize... We thought we were getting Rachel, but we got Leah. But when we pursue God, we wake up in the morning and realize we got even more than we thought we were getting. He never disappoints. Amen? Amen. Now, Leah sadly agrees to this, thinking, well, at least I'll get the man. I mean, think about what must have gone through her mind, how deep this idol was for her. I'm going to trick my husband into marrying me. He's going to wake up in the morning and see that it's not Rachel, but I'm fine with that. He's going to take me back to his homeland, and, and eventually he'll what? He'll learn to love me. He'll warm up to me. I'll change him. Not a healthy start for a marriage, but her idolatry is so strong she agrees to this. But she doesn't count on Jacob's idolatry being even stronger than her own idolatry. And he says, okay, I'll work seven more years if you'll give me Rachel as well. Wow, she didn't see that coming. So now she has to stick around for seven years with a husband who didn't want to marry in the first place and watch him for seven years fawn after her younger sister. Laban allows Jacob to marry Rachel before the seven years are up, knowing that he'll stay and work that seven years. So he gets to marry Rachel immediately after he just married Leah. And so he now has two brides, and they hate each other. Either this is very sad to you, or if your flesh takes over, oh boy, this is going to get good now. It's like when you're driving down the freeway and you see a wreck, and you're like, I'm not going to look. I'm not going to look, but 
I can't help myself. I have to see the train wreck. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. Finally, we see God's name come into the picture. And he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Reuben means, see, a son. She named her son, hey, Rachel, see, a son. Hey, Jacob, stop staring at my sister. Look, a son. How would you like your name to be a reminder of your mother's hatred for her sister? But it doesn't change Jacob's love for her. So she has a second son, and she names him Simeon, which means heard. The Lord heard my cry and gave me another son. This time, my husband will choose me over my sister. Nope. She has a third son and names him Levi, which means attached. This time, he will attach himself to me. No. She has a fourth son, and now she's brought God into view, finally. And she sees what a blessing it is to have these children. And she praises the Lord and names him Judah, which means praise. I think inspired by God prophetically to name that son Judah because Jesus Christ will come through this son's line, through the line of Judah. After that, though, all the other sons' names we're going to see are going to go right back to the pettiness. So that that one name... Keeping in view that God's meta-narrative, His grand plan is still in operation here. In spite of all the dysfunction, all the ugliness, all the pettiness, God is not giving up on His plan. In fact, He's using all the dysfunction and pettiness and sin to accomplish His plan, which is far more amazing than if He just pushed humanity out of the way and just did everything Himself. In Genesis 30, it says, Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. Wow, the tables are turned now. Rachel's jealous of Leah, whereas Leah was jealous of Rachel. And they're both doing it to get their husband's attention, and nobody seems to care about these kids much. They're pawns. They're bargaining chips. How sad when we as parents use our children to fulfill our own idolatry. Is your kid way into that sport because they love that sport? Or are you trying to pump up your pride through your children's accomplishments in sports or school or music or, or whatever? I'm doing it for them. Have you ever pulled them aside and asked them if they want to continue doing that sport? Do they have permission to tell you? Or do they know it would crush you so they keep playing along? 
Hard questions here, people. Idolatry is so insidious that it requires us to have other people in our life to point out the idols in our life. We don't see our own idols very well. We see them very easily in other people. Ooh, that's unhealthy. We need to pray for them. You need to have people in your life you can ask, do you see idolatry in my life? It's there. We all struggle with it. And just when you think you've knocked down your idol, you prop it back up a few days later. Like Dagon, the idol in the temple, that gets knocked over and they put it back up and God knocks it over and cuts its feet and head off. (laughs) That's what we need, is for God to cut the head off of our idols and cut the hands off our idols so they can't have any power in our life. So Rachel says to Jacob, give me children or else I die, like it's his fault. And he says, and this is the first time in a long time we've heard Jacob mention God, his anger burned against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? He understands that it's God who opens the womb. It's God who gives the gift of children. He's like, trust me, if you could have children and it was up to me, we'd have a bunch by now. But now she's getting jealous because he's obviously playing with his children and interacting with children like fathers do. Now she's not getting the attention. So she said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. The same bear on my knees. So the surrogate handmaid would have a baby. And as it's delivered, they deliver the baby right into the lap of the mother. So in essence, the baby becomes hers. Now, Jacob must know that this plan didn't work out real well in the life of his family tree, right? Abraham and Sarah with Hagar and then Ishmael and then Hagar and Sarah start fighting and this is just not a good plan at all. But he agrees to the plan And Bilhah bears a fifth son for him named Dan. And Rachel says, See, God has judged my situation and has delivered me a son. Dan means judge. And then Bilhah has a second son. And she's like, I'm catching up with my sister. This wrestling, this struggling against my sister. So she names the second son Naphtali, which means my struggle. I mean, these people are so focused on this competition for Jacob's love. They're completely obsessed, and that's what idolatry looks like. Through Zilpah, then, Leah says, well, two can play at this game. I mean, it wasn't good enough for her that she was winning four to two. God had closed up Leah's womb, so Leah says, I have a handmaid. Take Zilpah as your wife. So Zilpah gives birth to a son. This one really cracks me up. It's so sad. She names the son Gad, which in Hebrew means a troop comes. Here comes my five to your two. You know, there comes the Calvary. 
We're going to trample right over you. And then Zilpah has another son, and sadly Leah says, now the other women in town will call me blessed. And she names her son Asher, which is a beautiful name, which means God's blessing, or it means happiness. But she's got some people-pleasing issues, too. She knows she's her sister's the pretty one, and everyone knows Jacob loves her more than than her, and it's a real embarrassment to her, and people must gossip because they did back then too. And she's like, finally, now the women will say, I'm the blessed one. So I'm going to name my sixth son Asher. Okay, if it's not weird enough for you now, it's going to get absurdly weird. One day, Reuben is walking through the wheat harvest and finds mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Now, they believe that these mandrake fruits that grew uh, in the wild had a narcotic, like, aphrodisiac effect. And whoever ate them, whoever they were with, they would become uh, intoxicated with their love. So they were highly prized, and they were very rare. And Reuben brings these mandrakes home to Mom. Rachel sees the mandrakes, and she says... Talia, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. And Leah, who's not at all bitter, says, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? I mean, this is like 90210 Melrose Place or whatever's on TV now. I, I don't know what the latest shows are. Oh, Dallas and uh, Falcon's Crest and all those shows when I was a kid. This is soap opera material. And so they bargain and they trade mandrakes for, I know it's technically my night to be with Jacob, but you get them tonight if you give me some of the mandrakes. So now they're bartering behind Jacob's back who gets to be with Jacob tonight. And I hope there's no man sitting out there going, Jacob's cool. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is not an example of what we would want life to be like. Now, God opens Leah's womb back up, and she has a son, and she names him Issachar, which means reward or wages. And she says, this is my reward for everything I've had to put up with. Another son, and then another son, Zebulun, and she says, this is my endowment. This is my dowry. I am giving, any husband would be happy to have all these sons. Eight sons she's provided now to Jacob. Finally, God opens Rachel's womb, and she has Joseph, and she names him Joseph because it's he will add. And she, she thinks now the sons are just going to keep coming and coming. God will add, God will add, God will add. Eventually, she has one more son, and she dies in childbirth. And this woman that Jacob idolized, he loses. And he names that son Benjamin, which is son of my sorrow, and he becomes very depressed. And he 
in an unhealthy way, puts all of his attention on Joseph and Benjamin and ignores his other ten sons. So he does to his sons exactly what his father did to him times ten. Nature or nurture? Yes. But is God absent in all this? No. In Genesis 30, Jacob requests to return to his home with all his wives and children. Laban's now gotten rich off of tricking Jacob. Jacob makes a deal with Laban. He says, I want to go home. And Laban says, well, I don't want to send you home empty-handed, so what are your wages? I think they should have worked that out beforehand. But Jacob says, I'll tell you what. I'll continue herding your flocks. Anyone that are born spotted, I'm going to remove and put in a separate pen. And all the spotted ones, I'll keep putting in that pen. Now, some people think he's selectively breeding for spotted ones, but read the story more closely. That's not what's happening. And you read in Genesis 31 that Jacob says, look, if God's going to bless me, he's going to bless me. And so he kind of sets up this situation where God can bless him in such a way that only God can get the credit for it. And spotted animals just keep being born. And, and spotted is a recessive trait. So really, there should be more solid-colored animals than spotted, but God just keeps bringing the spotted ones. So much so that Jacob becomes rich. I mean, cattle was the wealth back then. Flocks. And Laban becomes poor to the point where he is bitter and angry with his son-in-law. And Jacob says, I think it's time to leave. And he gets his wives together and says, we are leaving in the middle of the night. And they take off and Laban tracks them down. And you'll have to read that story on your own. But that's in Genesis 31. In Genesis 32 now, Jacob makes it all the way home, but he's got to confront Esau, who still wants to kill him, at least he thinks he does. It's been 14 years now. And he sends a party ahead of him to bribe and butter up his brother. And while that's going on, he has another dream. And he starts wrestling with a man. And we later find out that that man is the angel of the Lord. And he's wrestling and he won't let go of this man until he blesses him. Give me a blessing, give me a blessing, give me a blessing. Well, God's already determined to bless him. Because he is the son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who God promised to bless. But I think the intent here is for us to understand that Jacob sees that He's made such a mess out of his life that if he's going to be blessed, it's going to have to be from God, not through his own manipulation. And so God does bless him and changes his name to Israel, which means God prevails. Even though Jacob thinks he won the wrestling match, his name is God Prevails, and that will become the name of the nation God is going to make through Abraham. God Prevails. God Prevails. What a wonderful name for a nation of God's people. In Genesis 33, Esau forgives Jacob. In Genesis 34, there's another strange story about their sister Dinah. In Genesis 35, Jacob returns to Bethel, the place where he had the dream about Jacob's ladder. 
And that's where Rachel gives birth to Benjamin and she dies in childbirth. In Genesis 36, we get some important genealogies. That takes us to Genesis 37, when we're, we're going to close. Now, Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. So they're back in Canaan. And when Joseph was 17 years of age, he was out pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. So here's almost the youngest of 12. And dad loves him more than the other sons, gives him a special coat, puts him in charge, and respects him to report back on his brothers. This is not a good recipe for family harmony. Now, Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, right? And he's Rebecca's, not Rebecca, but Rachel's first actual born son from Rachel. And he made him a very colored tunic or a long flowing tunic. Translators are a little confused about that word. Whatever the case is, he's wearing a splendid coat that you have no business wearing out out in the desert watching over flocks. But you can imagine him in this coat and maybe, you know, a clipboard. Large and in charge. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And the dream was about how eleven stalks bowed down to his. Oh, what? We're going to worship you? And it was prophetic. It was from God. The dream was from God. It's really going to happen, and that is just not something you tell to your younger or your older brothers. I'm better than you. Dad loves me more. I have a special coat. He's put me in charge of everything. And oh, by the way, I've been having these dreams lately. And so one day they see him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Beautiful uh, word in the Hebrew. It's like this dreamer of dreams. This dreaming dreamer. Now then, come let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Hmm, son's cooking up a false story to trick their father. Where did they get that from? They got that from their father and their mother. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. And then the narrator tells us what his plan is, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. Remember, Reuben's the firstborn son. He's the one that's supposed to have the birthright and the special blessing from his father. But his father's given all that to Jacob. And so he sees, I have this opportunity. I will go back in the middle of the night and rescue Joseph and bring him back, and I'll be the hero. So he wasn't trying to save his brother for pure motivation. He wants his father's blessing as well. 
In the middle of the night, some Midianite traders passed by and pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. A little irony there that he ends up with the Ishmaelites. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments, not because his brother was gone and he loved his brother, but he says, the boy's not there. As for me, where am I to go? Guess what? He's got to go home and report that he lost his little brother. So even though his dad never respected him for being the oldest brother, now it's, you're the oldest brother. Where's your little brother? That was your job to keep an eye on him. So now his plan has backfired. He has to go home and report to his dad that his brother is gone. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. Boy, is that prophetic of Jesus Christ, right? The beloved son rejected by his brothers, Israel. Jealous of him because of his special robe, his robe of righteousness that he wore. And they killed him. We found this coat, Father. Please examine it and see whether or not it's your son's tunic, not our brother, your son's tunic. Isn't this the special coat you gave him? Then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. And I put that in bold to remind us God is in control this whole time. How is God going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant? How do you get a great nation from one man? Well, through this sinful contest to win Jacob's love, we have 12 sons now. That's a good starting place to have a, a great nation. Well, how do you get them to enlarge when they live in a hostile land? How about you move the whole family to a land where they can be safe for many generations? Well, how are you going to do that? Have them throw their brother in a pit and be sold into slavery to the Egyptians. And not just any Egyptian, but the chief of Pharaoh's bodyguards. You see God's hand at work in the midst of all this dysfunction? Well, how do you bless other nations through Israel? Oh, I don't know. Have this kid Joseph be so smart that he stores up enough grain to not only save Egypt from seven years of famine, but all the surrounding countries. It's amazing. The world wants proof of God, and then we'll believe. Show me this God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky His handiwork. Oh no, that's just the Big Bang. We want a God who speaks. He has spoken through the prophets, through His Word, and through His Son, Jesus Christ. He's given us the gift of language. We understand abstract concepts. We understand metaphors, similes, puns. We have laughter. We understand love. We understand poetry and music. Oh, that's just evolution. Somehow that gave Homo sapiens an advantage for survival. Show us God. 
We want a God like us. Okay, God sends Jesus Christ born as a man. But not like us, perfect, without sin, humble and authoritative. And they called him a blasphemer and killed him. Show us God. If there is a God, I dare you to make me do what I don't want to do. Well, this God's more powerful than that. He will get his way through your actions, through your choices, through even your sin. You can't thwart his plan. That's how powerful this God is. And the world says, well, that's just coincidence. We hear these stories and we're amazed and the world says, eh, interesting coincidence. Man has fought against the sovereignty of God since Genesis 3. Today, man even wants to be sovereign over his own essence, his own identity, his own future, his own role in the world, and his ultimate happiness. Even Christians struggle with this. It's called idolatry. I want to be sovereign, not God. God is sovereign. It is the one attribute that covers all his other attributes. His absolute sovereignty. His complete authority. His lordship over all of creation. The uncreated is sovereign over the created. People come in for counseling. This is the main issue we all have. If... If only this would have been different in my life. If only I'd been born into a different family. If only I had a different set of gifts and traits. If only I had a different job. If only I had a different spouse. If only I had different children. And what they're really doing is we're complaining against the sovereignty of God in our lives. Instead of accepting it, embracing it, and praising Him for it. Tim Keller writes, When you discover that your idols lead to disappointment and disillusionment, you have four choices. You can either turn in your idol for new idols... Blame yourself as a failure. Oh, woe is me. I'm never going to be happy. My God didn't deliver, but I guess that's my lot in life. You can despise the world and just say, I am done with this place. I am so tired of God's creation. Nothing good ever happens to me. I give up. I'm the born loser. Or you can worship the true God. C.S. Lewis writes, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The gods of this world can't deliver. The true God always delivers. The application is the same as, as last week. Accept your nature and nurture because they're from God. God made you the way you are, and God put you in the family and in the situation you are in. It's our sin that taints the nature and nurture that he's blessed us with. So change only what God expects you to change as he's revealed in his word. Stop trying to change all the things God's made permanent in your life. That's rebelling against God's sovereignty. God wants you to be kind. Work on kindness and stop being like, well, God, why didn't you make me taller? God, why didn't you make me prettier? God, why didn't you make me more popular? God, why didn't you... Stop coveting and envying what other people have and trust what God has given you. Change the things He says you can change. Can you be more forgiving? Can you be more grateful? Can you be content 
Can you serve and love others? These are things we can work on by His grace. And then be patient with others, knowing that He's sovereign over their nature and nurture too. Give people a break. Changing your nature and nurture is hard. You know? Give people some grace. Don't enable them to sin, but give them grace. Give them room. I'm constantly doing things where my wife has to say, you're doing it again. (laughs) You know, right? I am? Oh, man. I thought I kind of got rid of that. No, it's back. And you don't have to throw it in people's faces, but you give people room. You know? You're acting like your mother. You're acting like your father. Well, yeah, that's nature-nurture. Because God has justified you by grace through faith in Christ. Because He's died for you on the cross in spite of your nature and nurture. Because He loves you unconditionally before you changed anything about yourself for the good. We can trust God for our sanctification. Ask others and learn how your particular nature and nurture tempts you towards sin and idolatry. What is it about my nature and nurture, honey, that... that you know, what particular brand of sin am I prone to because of my nature and nurture? You need people in your life who can answer that question for you. Find relief in the fact that God worked through some pretty dysfunctional heroes of the faith. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the rest are in Hebrews 11 Faith Hall of Fame, I have hope for me. God can work through a sinner like me. And finally, praise Jesus that we finally got a perfect representative of the human race. Give all your praise to Jesus through this. Father, again, we thank you for being our Heavenly Father. We don't deserve such a Father. Thank you for looking past our dysfunction, not ignoring it, but dying for us while we were still sinners and now living in these imperfect tents dwelling in us, Holy Spirit, and changing us from the inside out. Thank you. Bless our fathers this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.